Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Randy Newman is a legend. Countless scores, dozens of albums, a songwriting career that spanned decades. Academy Awards, Grammys, Emmys, some of the best songs of the 20th century. One thing he's wondered, though, and maybe this isn't that big of a deal, why hasn't he had more hits? It is amazing to me that I've been around this business and in it for almost 60 years. Jesus. And I haven't had more hits. Just follow me by accident. You know, you think, whoa, look at that. What well, it's in this movie and it's everybody likes it. <laughs> it's bullseye. <laughs> Coming up, Randy Newman. He's been writing music for half a century. We'll talk about how he's changed his approach to songwriting over the years, what's easier now, what's harder. He'll also tell me whether or not he has a hard time writing songs that speak plainly about his own personal feelings. I may have inhibitions, psychological inhibitions or something that tilted me in another direction of not saying, I love you, do you love me? No, you don't. It interested me less is what I say. Now, maybe it's that I couldn't think of things to say. Uh, I have a low love of me or something. He'll also tell me about his family. His uncle, who was an agent for film composers. His three uncles, who were film composers themselves, including Alfred Newman. A guy who inspired Randy to write music and wasn't afraid to ask for input every now and then either. He once asked me, uh, do you like this uh, melody? And I was like 10 years old. <laughs> and I said, no. Then he asked me, maybe I was a little older, but he said, do you, uh, you think people like counter melodies? <laughs> then, finally, our outshot, I'll tell you about a very big rock. A totally breathtaking, amazing, enormous rock. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's a cliche, but it's also true. Randy Newman doesn't really need an introduction. I mean, I can say Randy Newman to you, and you'll probably start thinking about this. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. When the road looks rough ahead. Or this. Short people got no reason. Short people got no reason. Short people got no reason to live. Or maybe this. Or maybe you don't even realize that he wrote this. Look a little deeper into his work. It won't take that much. And you'll find a songwriter and a singer who has produced some of the most complex, captivating, and hilarious pop music ever recorded. Like, you probably already know this already, but about every week on this show, I recommend something at the end called The Outshot. And I I don't think there is a musician that I have recommended more times in the years that I've been doing that than Randy Newman. The songs are catchy. I mean, that's part of it. He grew up around the birth of rock and roll in a musical family. His uncle, Alfred Newman, composed music for some of the greatest films of Hollywood's golden age. And he's funny, but he's not like Weird Al or Spike Jones funny. There are laughs, but there's also a little darkness. The laughs often come from characters, and he has a genuinely expert sense of comic timing. I remember one time going to see him in San Francisco. This was 15 or so years ago. And he played You've Got a Friend in Me, the Toy Story song. It's a great song. And he gets to the end of it and he pauses for a second. He looks kind of quizzically at his piano and he says, of course, it's all bull, isn't it? 
I'm trying to think if the lyric is bullshit. No, not necessarily. No, it's not. No, it's all right. And so Randy Newman's best work is all those things together. A love of pop and soul music, which he got listening to the radio as a kid. An intimate knowledge of classical music and the great American songbook, which he got from his songwriter father and uncles. And comedy, which he says he got from his dad, who was a doctor with a biting sense of humor. He's carried that tradition on for his latest album, Dark Matter. It came out last year. This song is about as close as he gets to confessional autobiographical songwriting. It's called On the Beach. It all began in grammar school and on the beach. Everybody graduated, there we were. Off we went to junior high, there we were. Randy Newman, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's very good to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to have you on the show. You've been doing this a long time. Uh, do you think that you do it differently now than you did when you were 25? Yeah. There's different aspects of it. I think uh, songwriting slightly different for me. In that I, I don't know is that I get as many ideas that I can see to the ending of it right when I get the idea. Like the, have, like the big rush. Yeah, the main, yeah, the, the big rush, it doesn't take me all the way through. It'll drop me off at the bridge or something. And uh, I think uh, writing for orchestra, I'm sort of better than I was because I know more uh, and the notes are still there. Performing, not much different. You know, I don't know whether I'm any better, worse. I don't know what I what you'd say. Your dancing has suffered a little. Yeah, uh, the dancing is is not what it was, but you know, you still. I mean, it's like it's like uh, watching Baryshnikov or something. You know, even well, even in middle age, that's very nice still a certain you. elegance. It's nice of you that I have that because I would say that uh, at least 389 people are going to think that I really do dance a bit. Did you think that you were going to be a professional musician when you were growing up? I think so. Uh, after I was a certain age, you know, 11, 12, I thought I'd maybe write music for motion pictures like my uncles did. You see it in the family. It looks like a possible job. It looked very difficult. It was sort of intimidating, but it looked like, uh, you know, there it was. I could see how to get there in a way. What what did you see of it when you were a kid? Your your father was not a composer for film, but you had no. He's a doctor. One uncle who was an agent for composers, and two uncles who were composers. Three. Is that right? Three. So, so no shortage. Well, what did you see of what they did? I mean, I I know that my uncle Wayne worked in the Defense Department somehow, but yeah. I I don't know anything. But he was like some kind of engineer. That's a, that's yeah. that's my understanding of it. Well, it's probably secret sort of what he did maybe oh, he's probably making medical devices <laughs> I saw I went and saw a few movies on stage when I was recording uh, Alfred uh, I remember seeing The King and I and uh, movie The Gunfighter that he did on the sound stage yeah they? on the sound stage and uh, where they were recording I'm trying to think of other stuff because I saw, I saw Yellow Sky was a western uh, I saw a bit of it, you know, when I was five, six years old. And I'd see him at his house working. And he was always, I mean, I was, he once asked me, uh, do you like this uh, melody? And I was like 10 years old. <laughs> and I said, no. Then he asked me, maybe I was a little older, but he said, do you, uh, you th think people like counter melodies? <laughs> and I said, uh, yeah, they can take that. <laughs> well, my brother was seven, so he got the same question. <laughs> well, I mean, it certainly uh, gives you an eye toward the, you know, the kind of preternatural certitude of the artistic disposition. Yeah. You're checking in with a 12-year-old. <laughs> Whoever's there. <laughs> but, and I know I've done the same. Uh, 
I may have been overly impressed with how hard it was because, you know, I tend to agonize about things and, and uh, think I'll be found out at any time. I can't do this work and uh, what am I doing here? But I find the more I read and the more people I've talked to, a lot of people feel that way as if they're no good at what they do when they've proven over and over, at least in their cases, that, that they are very good, you know. You're also, I mean, you're part of the... Is, is this your favorite interview yet? Yes. So you've done one-fifth of it as the best one-fifth, opening one-fifth? Literally, Randy, you should know. Like, when... I've been doing this now for... I'm 37, so... Yeah. 17 or 18 years. 24 years, yeah. Uh, and <laughs> I, you know, I would tell people, you know, that thing when people say, like, oh, who haven't you interviewed that you'd like to interview? Yeah. I would say Randy Newman. Wow. And it's a disappointment so far, but it's <laughs> it's still like I mean, if you're expecting five stars, you're still getting four. Oh, well, that's not bad. So it's still a solid that's performance. Not bad. He's a he's an older party, personable, but not real sharp. <laughs> <laughs> you're but you're part of the um you're part of the rock and roll generation. Like you yeah. were you were old enough to be paying attention mm-hmm. and young enough to be excited. When... Old enough to be loaded in Long Beach at three in the morning. <laughs> Wondering how I got there. <laughs> What's the first rock music that you remember hearing? I remember hearing uh, Shaboom, I think. We had a, a housekeeper who brought uh, uh, little scraps of, of humanity into the house, you know, <laughs> what was going on. So she would she sung in a choir and she danced... Uh, she knew how to dance and all, and she brought in uh, the first ones I remember were Shaboom and uh, oh, GG, maybe G. Oh, I love that girl. I love that girl. I think that's the first I heard. Fifty four, maybe. What did you? What do you remember thinking about? It? I liked it. Were your parents serious? No. My father joked around quite a bit all the time, really. But they were serious about about some things. Uh, I don't know how social they were. I mean, he he could have been, and but I don't know. Uh, uh, he saw a lot of people as patients, and he didn't want to see anybody when he was home. And your your mom was ill for part of your childhood, right? Yeah, she was. Uh, very nice, my mom. I mean, I don't talk about her much, but I think. Every time I did ask her for advice of some kind, gee, mom, I'm dating this girl and she, you know, stuff, the stuff of life to some extent. And she was very good on it. She got squashed by my father. He was big personality. And uh, she she uh, didn't have much room, I don't think. Did you, Was there room for you? No. Not much, uh, my brother and I, in a way. My brother would, would say no, uh, categorically. Uh, but he was sort of for us. You know, I believe he was rooting for us to some extent. He was a little competitive with me about things, sports and uh, and, uh, and music, too, because he wrote songs. I was just thinking of, um, you know, I don't know if you're a sports fan or a baseball fan. But... Yeah, I am. Okay, well, you probably remember the first baseman, Rafael Palmero. Yes, I heard about this. Yeah. His son. <laughs> yeah, so he's in, his, he's in his early 50s. 53, yeah. And he's playing, uh, he's playing in an independent league, right. but a pretty good independent professional yeah. baseball league with his son on the same team, and he's hitting better than his son. Yeah. And um, I know. Now, he is a – he was – you know, at some point in his career, I can't speak to what he's up to these days, but there was a point in his career where he tested positive for steroids. Uh, maybe. Um, There's some question about that, but okay, it hardly matters. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it's still a remarkable achievement, <laughs> but I, it makes me think of how tough it must be for his son. Oh, terrible. <laughs> uh, terrible. Uh, I wonder what it would be like if he got caught for steroids again in an independent league like that. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I I wonder what it was like for you in a family of musicians to have a father who, you know, your father was remarkable, remarkably successful, a successful doctor. Pretty much so, for a while, yeah. Um, but not a successful songwriter. 
and your no, uncle was an extraordinarily successful um, film composer. Yeah. You had two other uncles who were successful film composers. You know, there's all this variance in level of success in the family business. Like when the family business is show business, it must be awkward to have that situation. Because if, you know, everybody was a pharmacist, yeah, there's not a lot of gradations of pharmacists. There's gave somebody medicine that killed them and there's good pharmacist, you know? The, I do know, the... Think about it was my father worshipped his brother, Alfred. I mean, they all did. I mean, I think he was responsible for the family getting up out of poverty. Uh, he supported a number of them for a number of years. Uh, and he was really the only father they ever had. So he was very much respected. Uh it was not a one-on-one -on -one relationship with him. I think he was a step up, they felt. Anyway, uh, with me, I mean, I always liked my father's songs, lyrics. You know, there's a whole trove of them, which I remember. I, I try to remember them because once that light goes out in me, the songs are gone. Uh, they're not written down, most of them, or anything. But I remember, like... Uh, Evergreen, my love for you will ever be evergreen. Though winter snows may come and change the scene, it's come with me, love will stay evergreen. Boy, that's hard to sing. Anyway, that's, that's good. You know, I mean, if you were born in 1872, <laughs> and it could have been, you know, but he was an old-fashioned writer, but he was a... Uh, uh, had some facility with words, and no one else in the family showed any indication of that. When you figured out that you might actually become a professional musician, did yeah. you think that you were going to uh, be a composer? Or did you think that you were going to go and write songs in the Brill Building or whatever? Composer, because that didn't exist really. You know, oh, it existed. There were songwriters, and I'd see songwriters around Fox. You know, Jimmy McHugh or Matt Gordon, but I guess. Composing for film is what I saw, uh, uh, and it's what I intended to do, I think. I never intended to, to write uh, serious music, for want of a better term. But that was, that, that was my intent until a friend of mine said, why don't you try and write some songs? I mean, you like rock and roll, and we listened to it and all, so I did. Were you surprised when your songwriting wasn't... You know, when you weren't writing hit songs? Sort of. I mean, I remember thinking, well, this is it. This is right down the middle of the, middle of the road. Uh, I was doing my best, but I was trying to write songs that pe people would like, you know. I didn't do otherwise. And then I'd be, they'd get a record of some kind, and then I'd really be let down with the record. And then I, I didn't think that could be a hit. The record would be when I heard them. Uh, that's an excuse that you shouldn't be able to use. You know, you should make a demo that tells people stuff. But I, I just never did. In a lot of ways, it's like I was in a 200-yard uh, dash and I was running a 40. I'd write the songs and I'd make a piano demo. This is for the most part of my life. And that was it. And then I'd, <laughs> I'd go to school or whatever I was doing. Uh, and... Carol King, for instance, was making a demo and putting strings on the demo, conducting strings, and letting people know how she wanted the thing to go. I'm not sure I could have had some uh, success had I been more directive, but I don't know. It is amazing to me <clears throat> that I've been around this business and in it for almost 60 years. Jesus. And I haven't had more hits. Just follow me by accident. You know, you think, whoa, look at that. Well, it's in this movie and it's, everybody likes it. No sh**. I, uh, I mean, <laughs> it's amazing just by happenstance. Can you think of what the first song that you wrote was that was your kind of song written for you rather than 
the kind of song oh. that you thought people might like? Jeez, I don't know. Uh, let me think. <clears throat> you know, when I wrote Mama Told Me Not to Come, for instance, I didn't write it for me necessarily, but I mean, I did the best I could with it, and uh, I didn't think it was a hit or anything, so maybe I wrote that for myself, but not as an artist... I mean, but I think a song like "David the Fat Boy," boy, I must have written for myself. I knew no one was going to do it. Uh, Cowboy, even. There's a song I, I really love called "Simon Smith and the Amazing Dancing Bear." Yeah, that's one of those earlier ones. It is. That's the first song I wrote. That was like my style. Uh, in what Simon way? Smith was? Well, it had humor in it, and it sort of a a narrator that wasn't totally trustworthy maybe or totally likable uh and it departed from the normal vocabulary of things that was used in songs slightly not much i never de- deviated that much from it cuz i like it let's hear let's hear a little bit of that song okay i may go out to my <laughs> <laughs> Nicest places where well-fed faces all stop to stare Making the grandest entrance of Simon Smith In his dancing bell love us Won't they? They feed us, don't they? Oh, who would think a boy in bed Well, except everywhere It's just amazing how fair people can be I wrote a... Uh... I wrote a thing about this song for the show hmm. a few years ago. And the thing that I think about a lot when I'm listening to this song is that as I hear it, and I, I wonder if this is as you intended it, but as I hear it, it's kind of about this this central tragedy of being a performer, which is to say that the narrator is a circus act, essentially. Yeah, you know, the a uh, 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 sweet but grotesque uh, thing. Yeah, and gets a pass into this world of high society or whatever it is, right? Like, gets into the world that he thinks he's going to get into via yeah. show business, and is not aware of you know the special way that he is being related to in this world that he is being seen as a as an act not as a human being i've always felt that he was slightly contemptuous of mm. the the people to whom he aspired you know to, to be with he says who needs money when you're funny who needs money when you, if you if when or if you know when funny yeah uh so i always thought there was that, but basically you're right. Yeah. No, I mean it's possible it, it, it that I'm the, actually, rather than psychoanalyzing this character, I'm, I may be psychoanalyzing the author of the song when Randy Newman. Yeah, that's very possible. <laughs> I mean, I would, I would never think that just because I had a bear and got into nice places. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, your bear is amazing. I mean, for folks who can't see it at all, it's been quiet. It's this an whole amazing time, bear. But... Got me where I am today, though. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. He's got the bear. So I can see. But uh, it was a song I was writing for Frank Sinatra Jr. I had an assignment. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an easy sell to Sinatra Jr., right? <laughs> Should have been. No, this one wouldn't have been. But it was. It was Susie. Da 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 da. You know, they wanted to do teen things with him. That was about the instruction. So, uh, but I couldn't stand it anymore. Not him in the slightest, but I mean the uh, the lyrics I was writing. I had to say something. So there and bear, and that was that was it. I'm picturing you like in a hotel suite at the Four Seasons. Sinatra Jr. is there. Maybe the old man sitting standing behind him with his arms crossed, and there's a grand piano, and you're like, "Well, listen to this there bear thing I worked up." <laughs> 
<laughs> no, it, it was out. I don't think I ever played it for anyone and said, hey, I got that Frank Slasher Jr. thing. Here it is. <laughs> That's Dancing Bear. I, I did have a, exactly as you described, with his folded arms, a meeting with Sinatra. Really? To play him some stuff, yeah. What did you play him? I <clears throat> I played well, him first, lonely. First of all, how did you get that meeting? Reprise record. We were on the same label. Uh, and uh, Mo Austin, who was head of Reprise, uh, knew him very well, you know. Uh, so that was it. And he, he knew my family and stuff. But he said that. Yeah, I know the family. Very nice. Uh, but he, uh, I played Lonely at the Top. I've been around the world Had my pick of any girl You'd think I'd be happy But I'm not Everybody knows my name But it's just a crazy game Oh, it's lonely at the time And uh, he was back to, you know, folded arms standing like this And he says, I played it And he said, what else you got, kid? (laughs) (laughs) So so I played, I think it's gonna rain He sort of liked That was it We'll get back to my interview with Randy Newman in a minute. Don't go anywhere. When we return from a break, Randy will tell me why over the years he's struggled to like one of his most critically acclaimed songs. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message comes from Starbucks. Introducing new Starbucks Plus Coffee K-Cup Pods, the coffee that keeps up with you. With twice the caffeine compared to one pod of Starbucks K-Cup coffee, it's an extra boost to help you make the most of your day. Available in Starbucks Blonde, Medium, and Dark Roast K-Cup Pods for the rich taste you love. Look for new Starbucks Plus coffee where you buy groceries. Hey, it's Guy Raz here. And on the latest episode of How I Built This, how Stuart Butterfield failed in two companies pivoted, and then built two amazing new companies, Flickr and Slack. Check out How I Built This wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, everybody. I'm your oldest brother, Justin McElroy. I'm your middlest brother, Travis McElroy. And I'm your sweet baby brother, Griffin McElroy. Me and 3,000 of your closest friends just found your next podcast obsession. Okay, but like the second best podcast. Oh, f- just listen to my brother, my brother, and me on MaximumFun.org. There you go. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. Welcome back to Bullseye. My guest is the great Randy Newman. He released a wonderful album last year called Dark Matter. And on August 12th, he plays the Hollywood Bowl. Here's one of my favorite Randy Newman songs, a sad one. It's called I Think It's Gonna Rain Today. Broken windows in empty hallways, a pale dead moon in a sky streaked with gray. Human kindness is overflowing. And I think it's going to rain today. It's funny. I, I've heard you disparage I think it's going to rain today a few times. Yeah, stupid. Um, you're mistaken about that. Yeah, I know. I know. It's, uh... <laughs> but it's funny because like Lonely at the Top, which is also a wonderful song, is a song that is more Randy Newman-y in that it is like, I mean, I guess you must have had the idea that Frank Sinatra wanted to send himself up a little. Yeah, I did. I said, this would really be hip for him, you know, to make fun of that leaning against the lamppost stuff. But he is leaning against the lamppost stuff. He didn't want to make fun of it. Um, But, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a very emotional song, but it is, it is couched in a little bit of rhetorical irony. 
Whereas I think it's going to rain today is a sad song about being sad. Yes. Um, and I wonder if you, if you have explained to yourself that it is less artful or less Randy Newman-y to just say a thing in the way that almost all popular songs do. No, I, I would love to do it. I may have inhibitions, psychological inhibitions or something that tilted me in another direction of not saying, I love you. Do you love me? No, you don't. It interested me less is what I say. Now, maybe it's that I couldn't think of things to say. Uh, I have a low love-a-meter or something. But I think it's going to rain bothered me slightly. I've stopped doing that, disparaging it. It's ridiculous. It's, it's a very good song, I mean, I think. But it bothered me because it felt like a slightly sophomore-ish kind of whining to it. Popular song is for sophomores. Yeah, but you don't have to... Uh, you should emulate their best stuff uh, or gear yourself to the best stuff. The w- w- babyish whining isn't what... And I've done tons of babyish whining <laughs> even now when I'm hardly a sophomore. But that's what bothered me about it. But it's probably uh, my best uh, lo- loved or liked song, I think. I want to play Barbara Streisand singing it. And I think yeah. that this is you playing the piano, right? That's right. And yeah. this this was recorded uh, 45 years ago or something, but uh, came out just a few yeah, years ago. Yeah, it was. Scarecrows dressed in the latest styles With frozen smiles to chase love away Barbara Streisand is good at singing. She sure is. Uh, and uh, when we did that, I didn't think it was very good, really. Not that not. Uh, I'm playing the piano there, and it's, I, I'm being so sensitive that I'm not sounding half the notes that I'm playing. You know, it's a little too sensitive. Uh, but when I heard it, when she did it again, it, it, it was really good. Uh, I thought it was not a good version of it. I had preconceptions about her that she really couldn't sing to a backbeat. And while Think It's Gonna Rain is not a rock and roll song, it sort of has a beat to it. Uh, but it's a really good version of it, one of the best. I, I have another version of it that I, I want to play. It's yeah. by maybe my favorite singer of singers, yeah, Nina Simone. Huh. Um, and... You know, Nina Simone was an artist who, in in a funny way, was right in your wheelhouse in that she straddled um, classical music, folk music, uh, jazz, and R&B, all pretty – like she was – she had one limb in each of those corners. Yeah, um, that she did. And uh, it's funny to hear like the kind of direct emotionality that y- you're not confident about in your own songs – uh, that Barbara Streisand is so extraordinary at presenting in her way and to hear the way that Nina sings it. Yeah. Broken windows in empty hallways A pale dead moon in a sky streaked with gray Human kindness is overflowing And I think it's gonna rain today Wow, that's good. And that's her playing the piano as well. Yeah, that's really good. Harmonically, it's great even. Uh, better than I gave, gave her. That's great. Boom, she feels her way right through the verse, the melodic rhythm of it very good um both entirely believable i agree when you started recording your own songs yeah 
You basically were performing a kind of two a mix of two outmoded styles of music <laughs> even yeah. in the you know even in the late 60s early 70s when you started rec- when you started recording yeah like you were playing half fats domino songs yeah. half like full on music hall songs like or, stephen or, foster songs or, or, or something yeah. little ronstadt used to call it plantation music <laughs> and um what did you think about the way that you like or did you think about the way that you fit into popular music when you were working trying to be a recording artist or did you always just think like well i can always make music for tv and film no I was worried about making a living uh, a lot of times, but I just did what I think the song required. And I do like the Fats Domino rock and roll stuff. I didn't exactly realize that it was uh, uh, not au courant, you know? I mean, even now I'll have a song, I'll think, wow, this is my, this might, people might really like this. And I think, what the fuck? They're not going to really like this. It's, like, <laughs> it's not rap. <laughs> it's not. <clears throat> I mean, we should explain. But it seems irresistible to me. I like it. Did you listen to that music growing up? Yes. To Fats Domino, I listened to some, and to Ray Charles. I've listened to less music than anyone I've ever met that that had access to Western technology. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it feels like your your tastes, at least as a songwriter-performer, yeah, uh, maybe a little bit less as a composer, but as a songwriter and performer, it seems like your tastes were pretty much set by some Ray Charles and Fats Domino songs, some All American songs, some Stephen Foster, or whatever it is, you know, Great American Songbook yeah. type stuff, and slightly before Great American Songbook type stuff, and like maybe some, especially on the more recent albums there's there's kind of a little bit of celebration of like jubilee singing like oh. like a gospel music oh ooh i love that i love gospel music as a as a genre i like it better than anything else classical music too i think also uh gershwin uh, and, and someone who Kurt Vile maybe a little someone who deals with the orchestra and songs at the same time i always have liked doing that I took a class in college from Tom Lair, the songwriter. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It was, it wow. was really fun and cool, as you would expect. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I actually did not know. He was not listed on the class schedule. I took it because it, you could get American Studies credits for it. Well, was it American wasn't Studies a math manager. class then. It, it was wasn't a... his math class. It was He was co-teaching, and it was a it was a American musical theater class. Oh. And, you know, Tom Lair, a very brilliant uh, songwriter, very funny guy extremely grumpy at least at the time he's, oh, he's probably mellowed out sorry. now but uh, yeah. no, very but not in a bad way uh, in a very charming way and uh, at one point I remember him saying in class he was talking about songwriters after oh like Jerome Kern or something like that you yeah. know, something, something Cantor and Ebb you <laughs> 40, know, I 40 and four, 44 something yeah. after yeah 19 well, let's, let's call it 1955 yeah um, and he said uh, there's only two that I like yeah Stephen Sondheim and Randy Newman. Wow, really? He said that? Yeah, he sure did. Oh. Jeez, I um, I think I knew he had some idea of me, you know, had something. That's really something. That makes me feel like uh, it's sort of that what I did was comprehensible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that I did it right. Sometimes when you do a song and it's a comedic song and people don't laugh you think I didn't do it right but sometimes uh, it's maybe because they didn't get it you know and I want to be clear that he he was never the kind of guy who and I presume still isn't the kind of guy who like complains about kids today or whatever he was really speaking very deeply to his own personal and too countercultural for that I think he, he gets it but you know as a guy who was maybe the greatest comic lyricist of the 20th century. Yeah. A guy who could write a funny song that's so dense and wonderful. Yeah. Like, I think part of what he responded to is that there really aren't a lot of songwriters who even try to do that. No. There's no money in it. People don't want it. It's it's not a comedic medium. 
it isn't employed that way. Sometimes, you know, they'll write him a little bit. John Sebastian, I remember Paul Simon did some. Chrissy Hind, in a way, Davies. But mostly, it's not uh, done. So why did you do it? I, I say my father uh, got through life by joking around, whatever, all the depth uh, uh, of psychological inquiry you could shine on that is the wrong word. Uh, I'm noticing that more lately, where I'll reach for a word and it's not there. Uh, Me too, Randy. I'm 37. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're still all there. But, uh, oh, oh, the fact that he got through life by joking around, as did I. This is a choice. Uh, uh, I, don't, I don't know whether it was to dodge anything, because you get enough of the real, all right, no matter what you do. I want to play one of, uh, one of my favorite of your funny songs. Mm-hmm. Maybe the one that makes me laugh the most. I, I probably once a month or so, I, I sort of run it back oh, inside well, my head I'm and glad. laugh about it a little bit while I'm driving my car or yeah. something. Um, it's from your album Trouble in Paradise in 1983. It's called My Life is Good. Oh, yeah. So this is a song where your 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 character's voice is like a all set version of Randy Newman. Yeah, he's a fairly wealthy guy, and his uh, kids are. He's going to a parent teacher meeting. <laughs> yeah. Sort of. And uh, there's a, there's a point there's a point in there where uh, you have a chat with Bruce Springsteen, and he asks if you want to be the boss for a while. <laughs> yeah. Just this morning, my wife and I went to this hotel in the hills. That's right, the Bel Air Hotel. A very good friend of ours happens to be staying. And the name of this young man is Mr. Bruce Springsteen. That's right. Yeah, we talked about this kind of woodblock or something. New guitar we like. You know what he said to me? I'll tell you what he said to me. Dead. Hey, uh, that's funny. <laughs> the woodblock is a particularly <laughs> strong line. But the, uh, you he's know, so high. You know, he's just talking about woodblocks. It has this. <laughs> um, it has this really pretty chorus. It's just a gentle kind of quiet. It's a real dynamic change yeah. to the rest of it. You're singing, "My life is good," yeah. and but the irony of it is, you realize that this is an insistence that your life is good in the face of yeah. Emotional terror. <laughs> <laughs> he, he at the end of the verse, he sort of blows it. He, he says, "My life is good, you old bag." <laughs> <laughs> he yells at the school teacher. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I think it speaks to like it's funny. You were talking about your father and his siblings kind of coming out of poverty, like struggling to come out of poverty, and you know, like you grew up in, you know, the west side of Los Angeles right. among, you know, fancy show business people, I imagine. Mm-hmm. And you've lived to some extent a life in show business, like you're, you know, whatever. you got to go write a song I guess while, I have, yeah. while Tom Hanks tells you whether it's good or not or whatever. Yeah. You know, there, there are plenty of folks who are in that situation who respond to it by being blithe. Yeah, um, and it seems like it has given you a really intense sensitivity to that blitheness. Like, uh, come on, like we're the, come on, like how can this is what an, what a privilege it is to have this. Yeah, it's. I wasn't exactly a trust fund kid. It wasn't all that. I mean, at a certain point, I had to earn a living. It wasn't that my dad wasn't rich by any means, and there was no glamour. Particularly, you do music, you don't. You don't get to see uh, Scarlett Johansson or anything. You know, you get to see someone who picks up stuff that she forgot when she was making the movie. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, uh, I I once was in uh, UCLA where I went for eight years and was writing an essay in English class, and it was about just write about 
your neighborhood, you know, where you are. And I'd already written songs and everything by this time, but didn't feel like turning one of those in. So I wrote about a, a, a neighborhood, the neighborhood my parents lived in, because I still live there. That's right. And uh, I wrote it and sent it in about, you know, and he said, the, what he wrote on the thing was, it's, you know, are you ashamed of being sort of well off? I mean, are these people really so awful, you know? And I knew that. I know that. All poor people aren't noble, and all rich people aren't schmucks. It is harder for a rich man to crawl through the eye of a needle, you know? But I never thought I was that, that I believe that this is good and this is bad. It's too complicated. So the guy, uh, I think he gave me a good grade, but uh, he, he did remind me of that. My interview with Randy Newman concludes after a short break. When we return, his song, I Love L.A., we get a definitive answer. Is it sincere or is it ironic? It's hard to tell when Randy Newman's singing. Stay tuned for the answer. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, Lisa, the mattress with over 11,000 five-star reviews and a mission to end bedlessness in America. The Lisa mattress was designed to provide support and pressure relief to every body type and sleep style for a deeper night's sleep. Lisa plants a tree for every order and donates a mattress for every 10 sold. Get $125 off, free shipping, and 100 nights to try the Lisa mattress. Go to leesa.com slash NPR. I'm Ann Powers from NPR Music. Last summer, we launched Turning the Tables, a project that radically changed how we talk about the history of popular music with a list of the 150 greatest albums by women. This week, we're launching Season 2, looking at the 200 greatest songs by 21st century women. Check out who made the list and who didn't at n.pr slash turning the tables. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. With me now, music legend Randy Newman. He's playing the Hollywood Bowl on Sunday, August 12th. If you're up in Northern California, you can see him at the Luther Burbank Center in Santa Rosa on August 4th. I have a question for you as a transplanted... Angelino. Yeah. You're a native Angelino. Yes, pretty much so. Your famous hit song, I Love L.A., Yeah. to what extent is the message of the song literal, and to what extent is the message of the song ironic, from your perspective as the guy who wrote, wrote and recorded the song? It's a difficult one. I'd say it's pretty close to 50-50, but the emotional power is with the uh, positive. I love L.A. You know, all the little jokes about the bum and, and the uh, big redhead and, and the Imperial Highway, which if you know, if you live here, you know the Imperial Highway. It's not the Champs-Élysées. And I picked streets like that, except for Sixth. Uh, so I would say that it's, it's a very good question. It's about half and half. I mean, I, I have to say, like, as a, as a, when I didn't live in Los yeah. Angeles... I would hear the song and think, yeah. oh, yeah, Randy Newman's really given Los Angeles the business, and Los oh, Angeles yeah. has earned it. You know what I mean? Like, he's really taken, he's really taken those big, blonde-haired so-and-so's down I, a peg, right? That's, I, that's fine. I, would, I don't mind riding along with the redhead at all. But yeah, but, but you're, I, you're I, right. I feel uh, like as I've, li- as I've lived in, I've lived in Los Angeles for a, a decade now, yeah. I feel that it is, rather than a takedown... It is a sort of an acknowledgement of some of the inherent grotesquerie of Los Angeles. And a celebration of, yeah. of uh, lack of depth, <laughs> <You know? laughs> of, of, uh, of the simple pleasures, simple stupid even. Yeah, definitely. It's not, you can't write a Chamber of Commerce song about an American city. I, what are you going to do? I mean, I like I Left My Heart in San Francisco. I do I guess too. that's a love song. And you could write that one now. New York, New York, a hell of a ton. You might be able to write that one too. Maybe have to be for a show, though. I mean, what the Jay Z and Alicia Keys did a pretty good New York. That's pretty good. You bet. Okay, I'm glad to hear that. Do you yeah. get Do you get pumped when they play it at the end of the Dodgers game or whatever? Yeah, it's nice. You know, it's, it's not bad. And a lot of uh, 
they have a lot of Latin fans, and they they you know they know who I am more than the Anglo fans at at the game for some reason. Do you enjoy the way that writing for hire asks you to kind of be an emotional craftsperson and, and get out of yourself? Yeah, very much. I would never have written. Uh, you got a friend, or when somebody let me the, the thing from uh, Toy Story Two. Oh, a ton of these. A song called uh, "Love to See You Smile," which I just never would have, have thought of. I'm glad that I get pulled out of the muck and mire uh, to do something like that stuff. Uh, assignment writing. I'm not necessarily confident that I can sit down and write a song, or I can sit down and do a cue, you know, of uh, movie music. But I am sure that if you give me an assignment. And give me some words that you want to convey, uh, adjectives also. Uh, I can write that. Yeah. You just take a you just take a list of three or four adjectives, like and friendly. Say, what do you want? Friendly, yeah. Comforting, yeah. dangerous. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I uh, give it back, and then if they change their mind, do, I can do something else. What are you most proud of in your career? That I write well to assignment is one of them, actually. I'm proud of uh, instances in both fields where I've pushed myself a bit and taken some chances. I know I'm always taking chances with what I do. But it's a bit of a push, like uh, the great debate on the first, uh, whatever I called it. I forgot what I called it. I think that's it. On the last record. It's called The Great Debate. Yeah. And at the time, Davy the Fat Boy and some of the music from Monsters, where you had 45 minutes where you, you couldn't do a consonance. You couldn't write a, a straight vanilla chord, those chords I loved and Stephen Foster loved. So I had to go and, and do dissonance. I had to enter briefly the 20th century. And I it was hard for me, uh, you know, reaching for notes to do it. But I did it. And I was proud of that when I heard it years later. Is your work standing between you and retirement or are is retirement sta- the prospect of retirement standing between you and work? No, everyone I ask is standing uh, between it. <laughs> I, I'll say, you know, I'd like to quit. And if they'd known me a long time, you said that when you were 20. <laughs> <laughs> but and I did Uh, no one who knows me believes that it would be good for me I don't think I'd get in trouble anymore but that I'd uh, be unhappy writing watching reruns of the Tour de France all the time or something you know is that the plan reruns of the Tour de France (laughs) that and track meets just like this you go look and there it is again and you see it again and again I, I like those travel log uh, feel of the of the Tour de France. Beautiful places there. Race I don't care so much about. But I like that going through France and, ooh, there's a mountain. <laughs> I like those aerodynamic helmets that uh, they wear. Oh, uh, it's great, yeah. <laughs> football players should wear them. Why not? <laughs> those guys have bigger crack-ups than football players do. They should wear helmets like that. They're too macho to do it. Randy Newman, thank you for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. It was a oh, you're gonna stop me honor. now, huh? Oh, we're, we're right when we're getting to the good material, <laughs> yeah, the helmet, helmet material design. <laughs> I, I got, I got like 18 helmet questions here. It's just that we don't have time, right? No, I'm fine. <laughs> thank you so much, sincerely. Great pleasure, Randy Newman. If you live in California, go see him. He is playing the Luther Burbank Center in Santa Rosa on August 4th and the Hollywood Bowl on August 12th. I will be there at the Hollywood Bowl. I am very excited about it. His latest record is called Dark Matter. It's out now. Every week before we wrap up an episode of Bullseye, we like to bring you a culture tip from me. We call this the outshot. The stone itself weighs 340 tons. It's 21 and a half feet high. 
and it's gray, you know, stone-colored. It sits atop a trench, sort of passageway. As you walk toward the rock in the trench, you slope gently downwards, and the walls rise up on either side of you. You get to the nadir of the trench, and you're standing right underneath that stone. It blocks out the sun. It's cool and quiet underneath. You don't see as much as you did when you were on the dusty plain above. And you're suddenly aware of the potential borne by the stone. It's held in the air above your head by its very edges. And you're underneath it, trusting the artist who placed it there to keep it from falling and crushing you. Which is what it obviously wants to do. 340 tons rejoining the earth. The work is called Levitated Mass, and the artist who conceived it is Michael Heiser. He thought it up in 1968, and he tried to build it in 1969, but the arm of his crane broke when they were trying to put it together. He tabled the idea for a while. Then, a few years back, he found a new rock, even bigger, in a quarry in Riverside. Money was raised, rock-moving money, rock-installing money, trench-digging money. And in the end, it took a custom-built transporter to haul it, late at night, through the side streets of Southern California. In 2012, it was finally installed at LACMA, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. It seems, if I'm frank, a little bit less magical when it's swarmed by tourists posing for selfies where they pretend that they're holding the rock up in the air with their hand. But if you can catch levitated mass on a quiet afternoon, it just takes your breath away. It's unquestionably the work of humanity. I mean, it is an engineered structure. But it's also raw and natural. It's a rock. Unadorned, rock-colored, rock-shaped. It's impossible to look at that huge stone and not think about how temporary everything that surrounds it is. I mean, across the street, the sun glints on the undulating metal skin of the Peterson Automotive Museum. But how long will that last? 30 years? 50? 80? That rock will be there for thousands. It reminds you of your own impermanence as well. For all its beauty and engineering cleverness, you can't walk underneath the mass and not flash on how easily it could crush you. How the only thing between you and death is the support of the earth itself. It turns your stomach a little, but it's also oddly comforting. Go there sometime, in the afternoon on a weekday, maybe in the winter, when the sun's getting low on the early side, and it's quiet in the big sandy desert plain out behind the galleries. Enjoy the odd peacefulness in the middle of the city, and walk down that trench below that rock. Take a moment to think about the folks who put it there and about how long past your death it will remain in place. I don't know if there's God in that rock, but whatever's in there, it's a lot bigger than we are. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org, World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where this week an osprey was visiting, which is a type of bird, according to my producer Kevin. Anyway, I saw it flapping around up there, and then whoosh, down it went and caught a fish right out of the lake. It was very impressive. Turns out nature can be quite majestic if you look at it. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows here at Maximum Fun are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. We're all calling Jesus Chewy now. It's really fun. Nicknames are fun in general. 
Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. We call her Swish. Our interstitial music was provided by Dan Wally. He calls himself DJW. Our theme song was recorded by the Go Team, known popularly as the Go Team. Thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries Records, for letting us use it. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, we've got over 15 years. Wow. I've been doing this a long time. We've got over 15 years of interviews available. Just go to MaximumFun.org to listen. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Hey, guys, Randy Newman was on this week. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Reliant. Victory Boulevard.